Welcome to another new podcast episode of Global Policy Next Generation, an annual edition from the journal Global Policy, which provides a platform for PhD students and early career researchers to discuss their work and to publish research on par with the most rigorous of academic journals. I'd like to welcome everybody to the Scholar Spotlight here for the Global Policy Next Generation. And I have here incredible Mathieu Blondiel, who works on really fascinating issues on energy transitions and everything. So Mathieu, would you enlighten us about your work and about your current endeavors? We'd love to hear more about what you All right. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure and quite the honor actually to be mm-hmm. put in the spotlight as a scholar. Um, so thanks for that. So um, uh, currently I'm involved in a, in a really fascinating research project, which is, and I have to say this, uh, funded by the UK Energy Research uh, Centre, or UKIRK, and, and the research project is entitled UK Energy in a Global Context. And, and I'm located at the Warwick Business School in the UK then. And so the, the project basically has two work streams. Uh, there's one on, this is quite a mouthful, the geopolitical economy of energy system transformation. And then there's another one on the implications of Brexit for the UK's decarbonization and and in the past year or so, I've been mainly focusing on the, um, on the first work stream, the geopolitics one, primarily because Brexit has dragged on for such a long time, of course. For example, I'm interested in questions such as what does a shift away from a world economy driven by hydrocarbons uh, to one driven by electrons mean for our conceptualization of uh, energy security? What impact does or will this transformation have on um, the political standing of large fossil fuel producers, such as Russia and Saudi Arabia, but also, for example, their, their domestic political economies. Uh, what are the threats and opportunities associated with an increased reliance on so-called critical materials, such as cobalt, nickel, lithium, uh, and the likes that will be so crucial for these low carbon technologies? And another research question that we've been looking at recently is how do international oil companies strategically adapt to this new reality of energy system transformation? And so those are basically the types of questions that I'm primarily looking at uh, these days at the business school. Really fascinating research. And we spoke a bit about your transition from, you know, international relations and political science to business school, which is really fascinating. So can you give us a bit, people following this similar path or thinking about similar path, what motivated your PhD and how it led to your postdoctoral research motivations? How did you connect the two? And what yeah. advice would you have to others thinking about doing this? Yeah. Um, I think... Uh, what motivated me in the, in the first place to, to really pursue a PhD and, and to, to do research, for me, the most rewarding thing then is, is to work in an academic environment um, in the sense that you can, you can delve into certain societal, political, economic uh, issues that you deem really relevant and interesting. And in my case, that's climate change, energy, energy transitions. And so you can formulate your own questions. You can look at these issues and, and you spot these issues that you think are really interesting. And you, you see uh, and, and you try to formulate your own questions. And then you can do your own investigative research and your in, investigative work. And you can basically answer the questions that you ask yourself. And that's what I like about it, because you have this entire ownership 
over an intellectual process. And that's basically, it has been my, my main motivation uh, since I've been politically interested in politics since I was a young kid. And so I wanted to pursue that and, and um, or since I was a teenager at least. And, and so I wanted to pursue that. And, and that's what I absolutely love about doing research and working in an academic environment. And so in terms of advice, well, what I did was, so basically I got a, a PhD in, in international relations, right? And so at one point, you really have to ask yourself, so what, what do I want to do next? And I think if, you, if you're in IR and you're in, in, in international relations and political science, you're really focused on, or there's still this bias on states, right? States as being the central actors in this anarchic field <laughs> where states collide or cooperate or fight mm -hmm. and then... Uh, work together on certain issues, et cetera. And so that's a really interesting approach um, to international relations and, and politics, of course. But what I think is really key and what kind of motivated me to go into uh, this business school and, and see whether there were opportunities there was to look at these issues that we study, climate change, energy transitions, um, through this lens of, or at least starting from the, the realization that, well, states aren't the only relevant actors here. We also have to talk about NGOs. We have to talk about uh, international organizations. We have to talk about businesses. We have to talk about institutional investors, et cetera. And especially in the realm of climate change and energy transitions and energy as a whole, these different actors are so crucial to understanding the bigger picture of what's going on that I think uh, that was one of the motivations or one of the key motivations for me to really um, move away somewhat from this state-centric IR perspective on uh, energy transitions, climate change and climate change politics to this more holistic approach uh, where you take into account the interests and the preferences of a variety of that. It's a good pathway, and I agree with you. Interdisciplinarity really gives you that specific lens. Yeah. And going back to your work, because you're doing so much energy transitions on that zero energy. I remember norms, all of this, and now with the work school, you're doing this interesting uh, trajectories in terms of what do we do, how do we deal with energy of the future, right? So, mm -hmm. what made you interested? You talked about you know politics motivating to you go to PhD. What made you interested in climate change and energy as a topic in specific? Um, when, I, when I was still an undergrad and a master's student, and, and we're talking about early, mid-2010s, I think climate change already was, of course, on the top of the global political agenda. I mean, you had the, the 2009 um, the Copenhagen Accord, or at least the, 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 the negotiations that led to the accord that was, that was supposed to be the successor to the Kyoto Protocol, and that more or less failed, of course, and, and you had these, well, this, this, this political grandstanding around the issue, and it was a, a quite a relevant topic already then, it's not like, or it wasn't like today, of course, but still, and, and as I said, I was quite an, a politically engaged student, and, and, and at the time, I, I was already reading quite a lot on the topic. And so and then in 2015 or so, I think I, I read Naomi Klein's uh, This Changes Everything, and that was an absolute eye-opener to me. I mean, she writes, or the way in which she writes yeah. about the urgency of climate change, 
the entire global political economic system that lies at the roots of the problem and partially uh, about what could be done about that. I mean, that was an absolute eye-opener for me. And so for me, that was a true trigger to, to really uh, push myself because um, at the time I was doing a master's in London. And then I stayed in touch with a couple of old professors that I had from Ghent University in Belgium. And they told me that there was a positioning uh, or a position opening up at the university to start doing research on uh, fossil fuel divestment campaigns and, and fossil fuel subsidy reform campaigns. And so I'd read the book. I was really interested in it. I wanted to pursue a career in academia because I was so interested in it. Um, so, I mean, when that opportunity came along, I, I mean, I had no choice but to apply for the position. And then I got it. And yeah, today I, I am where I am. Oh, that's such a wonderful journey. And I think that ties into one question that I have later on with what what was the role of Naomi's book because you recommended to everyone. So it has been fundamental in a way in shaping your career. And you think it had for everybody that read the book, it just touches you so deeply. All of Naomi's books, I feel like they just are mm -hmm. such an eye opener. So I think mm -hmm. it's interesting how, you know, how what we read and how what we hear and what's happening around just really shapes our career yeah. journeys. And then this opening of a position, I found this is such a good yeah. journey, yeah. such an encouraging way to get about yeah. it. So, so I have to say, sorry, I, I really have to say, I mean, evidently I've also been lucky, you know, that, that all these things at one point come together. So there's a matter of luck also, I guess, involved in, in the entire. So uh, what was the most rewarding thing? Because you have so many interesting ideas. What was one of them that has been the most rewarding to you or where you felt that you've contributed to uh, the best way in, the, in a longer PhD, a longer postdoc career or even before? Academia. I think one of the re most rewarding things for me is that the research that we're doing or, or, or research that I'm doing is so, it's so topically, it's so societally relevant. I think, mm -hmm. um, first of all, climate change is so relevant to the future. It's already at our doorsteps. I mean, in Belgium here, um, there were floods a couple of weeks ago. And uh, 30 plus people died in the, in the climate or in those floods that climate change make far more um, or, or in those floods that, that are to a certain extent induced by climate change. So it's no longer something that will potentially occur in the future. It's already happening today. So through our research and through our trying to grasp what's going on um, politically, how we're trying to formulate answers to uh, these issues through, amongst others, this, this global energy transition, through our understanding of that, I think we can help um, uh, formulate answers that might be relevant for policymakers that have to engage with these questions. So I think for me, that's really the most rewarding thing that if you write a paper or when you write a paper and you finished it and you've gone through the entire review process and, and, and you've written something, and it's not only about getting it published in a good political science journal or IR journal, it's really taking your findings to the public and descend from the, what is often considered the, the academic ivory tower, right? Yeah. And so for me, one of the most rewarding things about the fact that it's so topical, what I write about, the geopolitics of energy mm -hmm. transitions and climate politics, mm -hmm. 
is that I can take these findings, I can write op-eds about it, I can write blog posts about it, I can be interviewed about it, about it and, and those interviews can appear in, in certain media outlets, and people outside of the ivory tower will read it as well. And I think that's really crucial to our job as academics, as young academics as well, mm -hmm. that we shouldn't only focus on getting our research published in the best journals, academic journals. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's important because that's the solid scientific mm -hmm. basis of what we do. But then take that, that science and those findings and, mm -hmm. and bring it to the public. I think that's a rewarding thing um, in, in, in my research. That's a good point. And once we have, and this is also possibly reaching some policymakers, hopefully down the line. So what would be your message to them if they were to, you know, find this video and say, well, what would you tell us? What would you like policymakers to know in terms of, you know, what should they do in the future? How they should approach it? Because as you said, we are facing this crisis, you know, outside. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. Well, I think one of the key points is that as we're facing climate change and as we're preparing and already going through this transition phase, um, we really have to pay attention and policymakers in particular really have to pay attention to this issue of a just transition, right? And for me, that's just basically one of the key, key issues. So <clears throat> finally, I think already among policymakers, it's something that social scientists and political scientists have, have long known that the fundamental changes to the energy system will have vast political, economic, social, cultural uh, repercussions, right? And so if left unmanaged, this transition will clearly hit the poorest the most vulnerable people, the hardest, and they will bear the, 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 the heaviest cost. And so that's already occurring in the global south. Think about the climate change-induced famine in Madagascar. What have the Madagascarian people done in terms of fossil fuel or carbon emissions to, to, be, to, be, um, well, to be suffering through these famines? I mean, so what you basically have to do you really have to make sure that these transitions that we're trying to implement today are, are just. We should think about how we can make sure that industrialized states or post-industrialized states help these nations, such as Madagascar, adapt to and mitigate climate change by providing finance, subsidies, even debt restructuring, right? Um, and so these just transitions, of course, um, don't only have to be uh, directed to provide financial support to uh, developing countries or the global south. It also has to be uh, about what are we going to do with these workers in coal mines in Poland, the workers, uh, the tar, the, the 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 oil workers in in Canada, for example, as well. Mm -hmm. How are we going to make sure that they? Uh, get the, the right financial support, that their families and households get the, the right support, how can they be retrained, etc. Because they're the ones that are going to lose their jobs and they have to find another job, right? Absolutely. So I think in terms of advice or perhaps not advice, but in terms of what I think is a really crucial policy issue uh, around this whole notion of, of the geopolitical economy of energy system <laughs> transformation, is this notion of a just transition. That's absolutely key here. Mm -hmm.
Yes, you're right. And what if so once we once we have this message to the policymakers, how do we then deliver it to the academics if we do refocus the field more in, in the just transitions, go into this trajectory? What do you anticipate changing in the way how we look at things, how we analyze things? Do you think there is going to be more progressive thinking if we want, went that direction? Or is there still something missing in that uh, trajectory? Yeah. Um, well, we, we just did a, a, a big review uh, article and we reviewed the literature on, on the geopolitics of, of uh, energy and energy transitions of the past 10 years. I did that with my colleagues at Warwick University and, and Durham University. And, and what we find there is that, especially in the geopolitics literature, again, it's very much about a great power competition, right? It's all about... What is the U.S. going to do? What does it mean if uh, China um, sits on top of all these rare earth elements and controls the supply chains of uh, these, these critical materials that I talked about earlier, lithium, cobalt, uh, copper, and the likes, right? So it's really very much focused on this great power competition about supply chains. But what I like, and, and hear more critical ge geography studies perhaps come in and, and more critical social studies come in and is really going down from this very aggregate great power level, state level, and going mm -hmm. down and looking at subnational level, household level, individual level, and really looking at how individuals are being affected by all these changes. And I think for academics, um, even IR, IR scholars, um, there's, there's uh, a lot to learn from, from these more critical fields of study. And to come back to, to another issue that we talked about earlier, um, in terms of, so I think a key issue here is interdisciplinarity, yeah. right? And so we talked about it before, and that's, so I, I'm, I'm a trained IR scholar, and now I'm working at a business school. <laughs> and so what I find really interesting is in a lot of the, the, the IR literature or, or, or the, the political science literature on, on, on energy transitions, fossil fuel companies are really seen as this monolithic block, right? But if you approach it, and, and there are evil corporations that are um, holding back any reform uh, and, and, and through their lobbying practices and well, you know the story, right? And so what I really find interesting now from this, now that I'm talking to my business school colleagues um, and we approach it from, from, from we, we approach this issue of, of energy transitions uh, from the perspective of uh, the literature on business, on management, on strategy studies, then the picture becomes a bit more nuanced, right? And, and, Again, I think this interdisciplinary approach is really crucial to get an entire picture and to understand more intrinsically what is going on, how energy system transformation isn't only this, this great power competition between the US, China, the EU, and Russia and Saudi Arabia. It's also a competition uh, between companies. It's competition between perhaps even individuals and households, et cetera. And I think that's really important to understand this, this, this drive for interdisciplinarity is something that I would really think might be a crucial issue for scholarship going forward. 
Absolutely, and I completely agree with you. The interdisciplinary lens is really something we need to push forward and work on it because you never know what you, what you learn from the other other side of the field, right? Sometimes oh, those miniature additions are actually the ones that were holding you back for yeah. from progress from working on it. So, and doing the same with my with my work, I find yeah. similar things: strategy management, really interesting insights into what we thought is you know really nice black boxes in political science. Oh, let's keep it this boxed, right? No, we actually unpack it. Let's look at it. Let's look at the other side. Let's push through it. I think this is where the invention, innovation comes through. Yeah, so this absolutely. is really good to hear. And going back, your work is so interesting because it all ties up really nicely because you mentioned to me a questionnaire that you really enjoy, Antonio Gramsci. And so <laughs> what we've been talking about, it's a bit of a Gramscian in a way analysis. So do you let us know what really, what was his influence? I hear it through your story, but would you, would you like to flash more? What is his influence in your work? Um, well, the thing about it is that he's influenced perhaps not, not my career, because I think the question <laughs> you sent me, how, how did he influence my career uh, or my <laughs> academic career? He died in 1937, so he hadn't really... <laughs> Uh, practically impacted my career, but he's, <laughs> I mean, he's such an inspirational philosopher, thinking, uh, thinker, um, political scientist, uh, homo universalis, actually, basically. Yeah. And so what, uh, what, what I learned from my courses, my, my introduction to mm -hmm. politics courses, is that politics is about power or the distribution of power, right? And so I think that also goes for, for climate and energy politics. And what is crucial for Gramsci is that, and that, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm inspired by, by more Marxist approaches to, to, to politics and, and to understanding society as a whole. Um, and what Gramsci basically says is that power isn't exclusive, exclusively derived from, from material resources. The power isn't only economic, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what conventional Marxists would rather say. So what Gramsci actually says, and this is so fascinating, is that, well, power, or what he calls a hegemony, of course, is derived from an interplay of coercion and an economic force, but it's also constructed through societal consent, through discourses, through narratives, through social norms, through networks or coalitions of different actors, and not just economic actors, but other societal actors, NGOs, um, and other uh, relevant stakeholders, and policymakers, and the like. So I think that's really crucial. And for me, and I wrote that as well earlier, this shows me two things. I think, first of all, agency plays a very crucial role in maintaining, but also undermining unequal power relations. And second, and, and this goes, specific, goes out specifically to, to um, climate advocates or, or climate activists, um, this means that the strategic use of narratives and building coalitions with businesses, investors, policymakers, and other stakeholders can help you build an alliance against uh, vested interests mm. that still seek to uh, delay it is nowadays, because now we're talking mm. about climate delay, right? that still seek to delay action. And I don't know if there's time for, for an example, but I, I really want to give you this example, and it's also in Naomi Klein's book, and that's about fossil fuel divestment. And I've, I've done research on that, of course, for my PhD, and I'm still looking at, at that campaign um, 
actively. And so the fossil fuel divestment campaign, basically what these campaigners say is, well, institutional or, or uh, individual investors, you have to withdraw your investments from fossil fuel assets um, and you have to reinvest them in, uh, well, green investments, whatever they may be. You have to take them all, you have to take your, or pension funds should stop investing in BP or Shell or ExxonMobil. So that's the crux of their message. So fossil fuel divestment campaign. And so looking at this campaign through a neo-Gramscian lens basically uncovers a lot of really fascinating stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, because uh, let's first talk about discourse, right? So discursively, they've used such powerful framing to promote their message, their divestment message. They employ terms like stranded assets, carbon bubble, and, and they really cloak their arguments in the language of risk management, portfolio diversification, profit maximization. And that's really language. And those are really frames that speak to uh, the financial community, to those pension funds, to these asset managers, to these hedge funds, um, and, and, and those types of actors. So what they do through uh, really building and these narratives, constructing, constructing these, these frames, um, right? They, they try to reach out to other stakeholders, to other groups of actors, and they build these coalitions actors, right? These actors that are still taken, and, and it's really sad to say, that are taken far more seriously in, in fossil fuel boardrooms than the climate activists vote, right? If you have the CEO of BlackRock saying, well, we're no longer going to invest in coal mining, then those fossil fuel companies are going to start listening to them. But if you're out in the street with your uh, thingy and you're shouting no more investments <laughs> in coal mining, well, you have less power. But it's through um, engaging with these discourses, through building these coalitions, and so um, constructing and, and expanding your, your discursive power and your organizational power, as neo-Gramscianists would say it, would call it, then you can really attack the fundamental material power of these fossil fuel companies. Because if all these financial actors, those banks, those insurers, those institutional investors, those pension funds are saying, well, we're taking our hands off the fossil fuel industry, then those companies will find it far more difficult to get money uh, in the financial mm -hmm. markets to continue to uh, fund their businesses and, and their action and their extractive actions. And so that's how this interplay of different forms of power, of discursive power, of organizational power, and material power come together in this, in this whole story mm. of, of fossil fuel divestment. And that's why I think the neo-Gramscian take on power is so powerful mm -hmm. for, for, for social scientists to understand what's going on. Indeed. Are you writing a book on this? Are you planning to? Uh, no, I've written a paper on that and I'm, I'm writing okay, a, uh, okay. a, or I've written a book chapter on that as well. Mm. Okay. Uh, so everybody that wants to look into it deeper should be able to access. Oh, that's fantastic. Okay. It's good. Yeah. It's good to have those sources because you mentioned so many interesting ideas. And I think a lot of our listeners would love to 
get their hands on it because this is so interesting to trace all of the details and unpack them and it's such a fascinating way. Mm -hmm. So before we wrap up, and because this is targeting for early career academics, early career researchers, what would be your advice to them? And you mentioned that they should be flexible about doing research even in non-academic settings. And I find it really fascinating because this is not an advice that we usually hear. We we talk usually they talk, you know, if you don't get into a PhD, you consider other options. What are other options? How do you consider? And you know. Research is our primary aims. Yeah, well, I think, and that's something that opened my eyes as well because I went to a business school. And so you, you, you engage far more with these consultancies and, and research institutions and, and even companies and consultancies that, that, that work outside of academia, but that still do really fascinating stuff. And I think, to be honest, I, I would definitely urge you to, if you want to pursue a PhD, you should do it. Um, it, I'm not saying don't do it. I, I definitely say do it. But once you've done it, really ask yourself, if I still want to continue to do research, is academia the only place in which I can do that? And to be honest, from what I see and from the reports that I read from these fascinating companies, I'm not going to uh, advertise any here. Um, um, then I really think that there is an opportunity for you if you're working in the field of, of energy, environmental politics, climate mm. politics, and you really want to think about what might happen next in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, mm. then there's really an opportunity to, to engage with, with these, type of, these types of companies or, or research institutions or consultants. I really think that, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, this is a terrific advice, actually, to think about, because a lot of people, once they're wrapping up PhD, they don't really know what to do next. Or some of them mm -hmm. have, obviously, idea, yes, I want to continue academia. But I think mm -hmm. those different opportunities, they really make it easier on us and the stress levels. Oh, if I don't get into academia, what do I do next, right? Yeah. And so, no, no, there is an alternative path, alternative way to go about it. It's really good. Yeah. It's like an option B, which is, yeah. you know, always good to have more options than, you know, yeah. oh, I feel like this, I'm not going to go anywhere, so no, yeah. it's good to have that. Perfect. Any wrapping up thoughts, Matthew, that you want to share with, with uh, both all the next generation listeners today? Um, it's like I said, I mean, if, if, if you're a master's student and you're, you're definitely interested in, in, in doing research and, and you like writing and um, just in general, you like absorbing absorbing knowledge then i think a phd is the way to go um yeah i mean i think that, that those might be uh, some good final words a phd is something i mean i don't know how it works in other countries but in belgium you have four years i had four years to really delve into a couple of cases mm. and and this fascinating field of i mean issues mm. at the at the intersection of climate and energy politics and there's so much going on in there. And there's so much to uncover still. There are so many issues still to resolve. And as an academic, you're so well-placed to um, develop your own voice in all these ongoing debates, uh, your own well-informed voice. And I mean, it's definitely worth pursuing that PhD. That's fantastic advice. Yes, I, I echo everything that you said. I think the development of new minds, new thinkers, new ideas is fascinating. It starts from the early age. 
as you start your PhD, you really carve your niche, you really become mm -hmm. that expert that we need. I think mm -hmm. this is, we should incentivize more and more people to kind of mm -hmm. join in the movement and lead us to it, these different trajectories. So I'm so glad that you know, found time and you're really busy scheduled to speak with us and share your insights and ideas and, mm -hmm. you know, unravel this amazing world of just transitions, you know, what do we do next? So thank you so much. Thank you for sharing your insights and advice with our listeners. So yeah, pleasure having you here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Global Policy Next Generation podcast. Make sure to visit our website and follow our social media accounts. And if you're an early career researcher, please send us your articles, policy insights or book reviews for the next edition of our journal or write to us if you would also like to participate as a guest on our podcast.